If you're a fan of Python's async and await keywords and the powers they unlock, then this episode is for you. We have Timo Furrer here to share a whole bunch of async IO related Python packages. Timo runs the awesome async IO list and he and I picked out some of our favorites to share with you. This is Talk Python, episode 389, recorded November 3rd, 2022. Welcome to Talk Python to Me, a weekly podcast on Python. This is your host, Michael Kennedy. Follow me on Mastodon, where I'm at mkennedy, and follow the podcast using at TalkPython, both on bostodon.org. Be careful with impersonating accounts on other instances. There are many. Keep up with the show and listen to over seven years of past episodes at talkpython.fm. We've started streaming most of our episodes live on YouTube. Subscribe to our YouTube channel over at talkpython.fm slash YouTube to get notified about upcoming shows and be part of that episode. This episode is sponsored by Microsoft for Startups Founders Hub. Check them out at talkpython.fm slash Founders Hub to get early support for your startup. And it's brought to you by Sentry. Don't let those errors go unnoticed. Use Sentry. Get started at talkpython.fm slash Sentry. Transcripts for this episode are sponsored by Assembly AI the API platform for state-of-the-art AI models that automatically transcribe and understand audio data at a large scale. To learn more, visit talkpython.fm slash assemblyai. Hey, Timo. Hello, Michael. Hey, it's great to be here with you. I'm super excited to talk about async Python. Yeah, same. Good to be here. You know, we've spoken a little bit through GitHub. I think it's odd, but also kind of awesome how many connections are made through places like that, right? Like we've never met in person, but we we previously True, chatted yeah. about some async things on on GitHub. Yeah, right? it's it's always nice to kind of see the same people again, which you met like online in a call or something and talk yeah. about something. It's pretty cool. And that's why I really enjoy going to conferences because you're like, oh yeah, you're the person I've been talking to for six months. Now I, Absolutely. Yeah. Cool. Well, I'm super excited to talk about all the awesome async Python things that you've curated. Before that though, let's just get into your background. What's your story? How did you get into programming in Python? Yeah, so I started programming, I think when I was around 10 years old, I, at the time I was exploring at an offline computer from my parents, which didn't have a lot of like things on it, but there were a few applications. And one of those were, I think it's called front page, like Microsoft front page and publisher, which is like, yes, it was like Microsoft word for creating websites. It was insane. Yeah, exactly. So I was like playing around with this and just you know, exploring whatever was there because I didn't have any internet. And yeah, that's how I got interested in like how things are built in, in a computer. And at some point I got internet, I kind of browsed around to see like how these websites really work like. And yeah, that's how I got into PHP uh, and HTML and did some website stuff. Couldn't you open a website in front page? Couldn't you like point it at a URL and say, open this and it would pull down the HTML like into the editor? I think I remember. I don't even remember. What a weird piece of software that was. Sorry, I don't want to do it earlier. I'm just thinking back of like the early web was a weird time. I more used Publisher than I used FrontPage because it was more yeah. pop- complex for me at the time and I didn't really have any documentation or tutorials. So I, yeah, it was more like fiddling around and getting something to work and something to happen. So. Cool. So you found your way to PHP. Yeah. Then I went to PHP, did some very basic websites like guest books and these kind of things uh, with PHP, but nothing, nothing really big. And then after mandatory school years here in Switzerland, I started an apprenticeship at Roche. It's a pharmaceutical company. So if, you, if you've done any PCR tests lately, you 
probably have done that on an instrument of them. And there I was in a team where we did hardware simulation testing for software, which is running on these instruments. And all these, like the testing framework around the simulation was in Python. And that's basically how I, how I got started in Python. Mm-hmm. Yes, it's mostly like testing code and providing frameworks in Python for testing. That's cool. That's a, a neat way where you can connect your code to physical things, you know, testing. Yeah, it, it's super nice. Like lab equipment and stuff. The simulation at the time, it also had some 3D visualization. So you could see motors moving around and kind of, you know, wow. see pipettes colliding and these kind of things, which was uh, pretty awesome for me at the time because it was my first job, basically. And yeah, it, 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 it was super cool. It was super cool. We also built with Python, like a distributed testing framework or testing system, kind of like you, you would have in Jenkins these days or or any other CI system. Yeah, they probably don't have as easy integration to actual hardware. <laughs> you know, when I push to this branch, I wanted to fire up that robot. Oh, okay. Exactly. And also like a huge problem is like error case testing. Like you can't just break a needle in an instrument while when you're running something because either you get hurt or it just costs you a thousand dollars just for breaking something for testing. So you need some kind of simulation to, to actually do that. Yeah, very fun. How about now? What are you up to now? Yeah, I recently started a new job at GitLab. I'm a senior backend engineer in the Configure group. And what we're doing is we provide Kubernetes integration for GitLab, GitLab projects and groups, these kind of things, and also are responsible for the infrastructure as code features like the Terraform state backend and the Terraform provider, which also I've been maintaining for a year now as just like an outside contributor. Yeah, but this is mostly Go. If Maybe, you know, Ruby is, is a big player in, in GitLab. So the entire GitLab reap was mainly a Ruby and Rails application. Give us the elevator pitch on, on GitLab. Is it, I should use GitLab instead of GitHub or something else? <laughs> or you know, what, what's the value proposition for GitLab? It's a good question. What you see here also on the screen is that it's called the one DevOps platform. So it provides much more feature, I think, than, than GitHub in terms of like front planning to production than monitoring an application get like all these insights, which you cannot really do on GitHub. So you have all, yep, you basically have features for all the DevOps lifecycle stages. And here, for example, you see the Verify where you have a very powerful pipeline integration. Yeah. The open source world is, is happening on GitHub, but a lot of enterprises are using GitLab these days for developing their applications. Yeah, it's definitely a, an important piece of, piece of the puzzle out there. And how long have you been at GitLab? Just one month. Actually, today marks my one month being at GitLab. So wow. So you probably yeah, you're probably just starting to get comfortable with like how stuff works and how you deploy things and so on. Exactly. It was a lot of onboarding, but I've been contributing before, so not everything was new, and I've been using GitLab as a user. So sure, it wasn't that tough. I would say. Cool. All right. Well, let's go ahead and jump into your project. Sure. It's one of these awesome lists, and it's about one of my favorite aspects of Python because it. Async IO, async and await, they let you write such neat software that really takes advantage of latency. And when other parts of the system are busy, you can just keep on going without rethinking how your code works all that much. So I'm, I'm a super fan of async and await in Python and in all the languages that use it, I suppose, because I just like the idea. But, you know, tell us about your project and maybe first start with like, what the heck is an awesome list anyway? An awesome list is just a curated list of projects or whatever the awesome list is about. It could be recipes or whatever. And it's just trying to collect awesome pieces of that thing. In this case, async IO, which are async IO packages or projects 
and you basically showcase them to, to the readers and they could, you know, take in inspiration for their next project stack or can just explore like what's out there and what people feel that is awesome. And yeah, I, I mean, I'm not an expert in, in all of these by far. So I'm more like a librarian of, of the list and rely on people contributing actually their awesome projects or ideas or, or whatever. Yeah, neither, just a, as a disclaimer up front, neither of us are, you know, maintainers of all these projects or <laughs> like we're not super experts. It's more of a, a survey of all the cool things. And I do think that's one of the really cool powers of the awesome list. You know, I remember the first time I found awesome Python, I was like, wow, look at all these things I didn't even know existed, right? It's, it's not necessarily that you use the awesome list to make a decision about what you use, but it, it's like a good starting point for research, depending on whatever area, like you've broken your list into stuff about databases and about networking and about web frameworks. And as we'll see, and you know, you go to that section you're interested in, and you're like, oh, here's my 10 research projects to figure out what I want to do. I think it's also nice to just, you know, once in a while browse through it and see like where, where the ecosystem is at and like what new things have been popping up. So, so another thing I think maybe is worth touching on, I get the sense, although I'm not 100% sure because I'm asking you now, that these things that get put there, they don't, it's not an exhaustive list. It's more of a things that the community thinks reaches some threshold for interestingness. So under the PRs, I see you got a new one an hour ago. Yeah, so <laughs> under the PRs, <laughs> you have a please vote before these are accepted because like what it means to accept a PR is really to add a line to a readme. It's not like a super, oh boy, how does this affect our overall performance? Like there's not a lot of considerations in that regard, but the question is sort of, let's talk about whether it belongs on the list, right? How do things make it on your list? Yeah, it's, it's a very good question. And I've never been really strict about these rules and maybe I should be, I don't know. But I usually put this please vote label on pull requests just to see if people are interested in this. Usually I also check things like the stars. When was the last contribution? Like how many, how many contributors are there? Because if we put something here on the list and then people start using it and we burn out some maintainers of a library, we just wanted to do, you know, publish something. Yeah. I don't know if that would be a good idea. Right. And right. And on the other end of the spectrum, you've got, you know, maybe there are people who publish something just for the heck of it, but there's one person they've touched it two years ago and you know, it's, it's not necessarily something you want to recommend. If there's five stars and no one using it, and is it really going to be good enough? Okay, cool. So I'm guessing it's open for people to go and do more PRs and suggest more things if they listen to the show and they're like, but you forgot about this awesome thing. Yeah. If people are listening and have something awesome, please uh, create a pull request. Always great to have, have some addition. Yeah, cool. All right. Well... Let's, let's go through it. So I think we'll just take it section by section or topic by topic. And I know you pulled out a couple of things that were interesting to you. I grabbed a couple as well. And we'll just, just touch on them, you know, kind of work on that awareness and cover the broad spectrum of what's available. So we'll take it, I guess, the top section that you have here, probably the most important section, I would say, is web frameworks, right? There's some interesting ones. First of all, it's kind of notable, the ones that are not there yet. Maybe, actually, maybe there's some PRs that should be making their way there. The really traditional web frameworks that people think about are, are not there, right? We don't see Flask directly, although through Court, it's there, which is kind of its full async implementation. Django is not listed. Bottle, Pyramid, a bunch of these older ones. But the really hot new ones are here, right? Like we've got Fast API and Sanic and some of the others as well. Mm. I guess people are just 
probably more excited about those. And then, you know, they're kind of hyped and, and that those, and that's probably why they end up here and not having like pyramid or, or the other ones. Yeah. Well, a pyramid doesn't, I doesn't have a async version, but you know, it's interesting that Django does. And I think maybe somebody should do a, a PR for Django now that it actually properly supports all the way to the database layer. But, you know, until recently it didn't. And what's notable, I think, about all of these frameworks that are here on the web one and pretty much for many of the others as well is not just they have a capability to do async, but they were kind of born to be async, right? Yeah, you're right. And, and I think also some of them, I mean, they're all, they're not all on the same level, I would say. Like we have, uh, Starlet, which may be like a very lightweight framework that others kind of build on top, like Fast API, which, you know, Starlet may be more comparable to Quartz than Quartz is to Fast API, right? So we have these kind of different layers where people could build upon. And yeah, so it's, it's some variety here. Yeah. And you've got a, a couple of WebSocket style ones in here as well that are maybe not full frameworks, but they, they work in that regard. Yeah. So, you know, notable to me here, certainly. I mean, Fast API is definitely taking the world by storm. It only came out a couple of years ago and it's already got 50,000 GitHub stars. And that's close to what Flask and Django have. It's, it's certainly a popular one. Mm. Yeah. Have you got any chance to play with Fast API? I do. Yeah. Or, or I did. At my last job, we built some, some applications on top of Fast API. And I, we also at Roche, we open source one, which is Kind of nice. Um, I always like the, like the fast API experience overall. Like, you know, the documentation is super nice. I think Sebastian did a great job and also taking the extra mile to explain more general concepts in a fast API, like introduction to async IO and these kind of things, which the others do not have. They don't need to, but it's just that you can see that they really care about the community and the users of fast API to make it very easy to put something into production. It definitely stands out in that regard for sure. So Fast API is notable. I also think another one worth uh, giving a shout out to is Starlet. Now, Starlet is not as popular, right? Having 7,000 GitHub stars. Not that this is like a popularity contest, but it, it gives you a sense of like how many people are using it, right? And so Starlet is its own web framework, but it is also something that can be used for the building blocks of other web frameworks, which I think is unusual for, you know, Flask isn't like, well, take us apart and just use us. Don't actually use Flask or, you know, but Fast API itself actually is built on Starlet. So much of what people love about Fast API, they actually love it about Starlet. It's just kind of like a pass-through. Yeah, I think for, for a lot of things, Fast API is, is just a pass-through to, to Starlet. And that's what I meant before with, yeah. a lot of people are like comparing or see blog posts like Fast API versus Flask or Quart and these kind of things. But it's an unfair comparison because they're, like Starlet and Quart, I think they're meant to be extended into something. Like going from the micro framework to your like web application uh, afterwards. And I think you will have either start using Fast API if you need all these features. Then, you know, it depends on the use case, I guess. Very cool to learn about that one. Also, Sanic. I hadn't really been tracking Sanic until recently. I had been and then kind of didn't pay too much attention. But this is a pretty popular framework. 16,000 stars and... Yeah, it's it's kind of got its own philosophy. It's a little bit like Starlet, actually, in its style. I've never used it. I, I've seen it around, but I never really looked into it. So what is it that it has a different style? What do you mean? Well, so many of the web frameworks, that's a great question. So many of the web frameworks these days are like, we're a brand new web framework. We look just like Flask, except, <laughs> you know, yeah. we're just like Flask, but we're API oriented. 
and we come with auto documentation. We're just like Flask, but <laughs> we do this other slightly different thing. You know, they're they're all like oh, you create an app and then you say app dot get or app dot route on your and you kind of build up out of a blueprint or a API router style of like separator, right? This there's so many of these new web frameworks that are highly inspired by Flask, but they don't carry over the same runtime. They carry over kind of the shell API concepts, right? And Sanic is is not so much like that. So if you go and check out uh, Sanic, they have like a good getting started. Let's see if I can pull up an example. They have a huge button that says get started. Maybe I should click that. So if you look at the way that that it works is you just create functions. Here's, they're using this app.get. So I saw some, I believe that were, you just say, here's a function, here's its URL, go and call it, right? Where it's a little more, uh, assemble it back together. But yeah, anyway, it's it's an interesting web framework as well. A little bit different. And it's I think it's really nice that there's all these people attempting different perspectives on solving the same problem. It's cool. And it, probably depending on the use case, one suits you better than the other. I mean, it's not that fast API just because it has so many stars that it's always the best choice, right? Maybe Quark is better for your use case because you want something very minimalistic or something you can't ex- extend in your own ways. Yeah. And some of these, like Sanic just added this ability to have background workers that are managed. So you don't have to go all the way to like a celery worker type of infrastructure. Just the web framework will manage it. And I believe Starlet also has that. Yeah. I guess one more thing to give a shout out to is the stuff from the Encode folks. Mm. There's a lot of those appearing here. So they've got Starlet, they've got HTTPX and UVicorn, right? Once you get one of these frameworks, you got to run it, right? Yeah. And probably it's one of the the most popular for production, I think. At least that's what so we've been using. And we've been super happy. I mean, it yeah, words great, fast. If you use it with UV loop, yeah, uh, UV loop will make an appearance a little bit later as well. <laughs> but yeah, I, I've been using UV Accord for production uh, also, I'm loving it. Okay, and I guess also one thing I'll put into the show notes here is can't remember which framework had this that I pulled it up. It might have been Sanic or Starlet, one of those two. But they created a filter across the Tech and Power Web Framework benchmarks that just highlight the Python ones. Right, because there's how many 290 frameworks in this. Mm. I don't really care what this obscure Rust, <laughs> the super lightweight thing does, because it's not a full web framework, and I will never use it, and, and so on. So it's kind of interesting to compare just the like raw basic ones or whatever. But if people are con- doesn't necessarily matter too much, but if you kind of want to get a sense of what performance looks like across all of these, you know, here's uh, I'll put a link to the the Tech and Power benchmarks. I don't know. What do you think about these things? Does, does this influence you to see, oh, Sanic is above fast API or, or do you not care? It's nice to see those comparison and kind of see how the theory optimization in these frameworks kind of translate to, to practice. But in the real world, I would say that it doesn't really matter too much because it's probably your business logic, which is slowing you down. Yes. And these kind of things or latency to your database or whatever, and not the framework itself. So I would take those with a yeah with salt, a grain of salt. Then. Yeah, it's kind of like asking. Well, if I have a tight loop and I increment a number, how fast can I do that? It's like, okay, well, sure, C plus plus is super fast for that, but that's not what real software does. Real software interacts with all these things, and like that thing, difference you think is so huge is like a, a little marginal bit over the real work. This portion of Talk Python to me is brought to you by Microsoft for Startups Founders Hub. Starting a business is hard. By some estimates, over 90% of startups will go out of business in just their first year. 
With that in mind, Microsoft for Startups set out to understand what startups need to be successful and to create a digital platform to help them overcome those challenges. Microsoft for Startups Founders Hub was born. Founders Hub provides all founders at any stage with free resources to solve their startup challenges. The platform provides technology benefits, access to expert guidance and skilled resources, mentorship and networking connections, and much more. Unlike others in the industry, Microsoft for Startups Founders Hub doesn't require startups to be investor-backed or third-party validated to participate. Founders Hub is truly open to all. So what do you get if you join them? You speed up your development with free access to GitHub and Microsoft Cloud Computing Resources and the ability to unlock more credits over time. To help your startup innovate, Founders Hub is partnering with innovative companies like OpenAI, a global leader in AI research and development, to provide exclusive benefits and discounts. Through Microsoft for Startups Founders Hub, becoming a founder is no longer about who you know. You'll have access to their mentorship network, giving you a pool of hundreds of mentors across a range of disciplines and areas like idea validation, fundraising, management and coaching, sales and marketing, as well as specific technical stress points. You'll be able to book a one-on-one -on -one meeting with the mentors, many of whom are former founders themselves. Make your idea a reality today with the critical support you'll get from Founders Hub. To join the program, just visit talkpython.fm slash foundershub, all one word. The link's in your show notes. Thank you to Microsoft for supporting the show. Yeah, and I would also say that most of the people don't actually need that speed. If you may need it, you may also choose another language or, you know, if this really is a thing for you, then yeah, I don't know if this... Micro optimizations between SANIC and fast API really brings you much benefit. I would certainly say pick the API that makes you happy, the, exactly. the programming API and the framework that makes you happy and just go with that. Yeah. Good advice. All right. Let's see. Are we on to our next section? We are message queues. Yeah. I haven't been a big user of any of these. I've been using the MQP one a while ago, so I don't really know where it's at these days. Message queues are interesting. They're a way to add crazy scalability. If you've got a lot of stuff that takes a while, but you don't need the answer right away, they're pretty interesting. But I, I just haven't needed them much myself either. I did, not too long ago, speak with Min Reagan Kelly about zero MQ in Python. And apparently they're doing a lot of cool stuff for powering Jupyter with zero MQ. So it's way more interesting than I initially kind of, in my mind, gave it credit for. But yeah, it's a cool project. So, so they're hosting Jupyter or... What did they do? They're using for something for um, like the client server communication. I thought, but it's been, a, that's what I think I remember, but it's been like a, quite a long while since I, I talked to him about it. Mm -hmm. But yeah, we've got the AMQP one. That's the one you talked about, right? Yes. It's the one you would use if you use RabbitMQ, for example. Right. You start mm -hmm. using the AMQP protocol and then that's where you can use these, this, this library in particular. Right. You have the PyZMQ. That's the zero MQ one I was talking about. And then some others, one for like Apache Kafka, for example. But again, anytime you're talking, these are usually separate processes, sometimes on separate machines, you're doing network comms. Like if you, if you have the word, I'm talking over a network, then async and await, I mean, async IO, like what does the IO stand for, right? And, and I think point being also here is that you have async IO libraries for pretty much all message queues out there these days. I mean, we, every time I looked and, and looked for a library, it was so something was out there and, and you could use. All right, let's move on to the next one, which is the database stuff. So I think this is another area where you spend, you're, especially in the web apps, 
you're spending a lot of time waiting. So thinking about your asynchronous database driver is super important, right? Yeah, absolutely. And I think it, it's not too long ago when there wasn't really good support for async IO and databases. It's yeah. great to see that a lot of projects are, are now supporting it. And also you mentioned Django, which uh, has it all the way to the, I'm not a Django user, so I, I don't really know. But I also guess that's a huge deal. Yeah, I mean, that was the main blocker, I believe, is that Django ORM didn't have an async interface. And I think it was 4.1, again, not doing a ton of Django myself either, but I think Django 4.1, which just came out, kind of completed the whole cycle and, and added that. Very cool. Yeah. So what database drivers stand out on this list for you? Well, I think async PGA is a very popular one if you use Postgres. I've been using it. And hmm. usually you don't really see much about them, actually, because you may use SQL Alchemy um, on top of these drivers. So right. as an end user, you may not have seen them, but you may have used them. The only way you might see them is you put a, the async connection string into SQL Alchemy and it complains that it doesn't have this package. Like, well, I guess I got to install that. Here we go. <laughs> right? Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So certainly the async PG one, I think is pretty interesting. This one is from the EdgeDB folks, right? From, is that Magic, I believe? Yeah, Magic Stack, like Yuri and crew over there. So the same people that do UV loop, right? Uh, he did a lot of the original async IO work in Python itself, I believe. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think there's also a nice, uh, interesting Talk Python to Me episode about uh, with Yuri, I think it was song. Yeah, I think I spoke to him in the about a year ago as well. And that was a great chat. Yeah. Uh, let's see what else stands out to me here. So motor, if you're doing MongoDB, then motor is often the building block, much like async PG would be the building block for SQL Alchemy's async. Then motor is the building block for a lot of the Python MongoDB async libraries. Yeah. I also noticed that for Redis. Which one is that? The Redis Pi? Yeah, exactly. So that I noticed a week ago or something that this IO Redis was included into the official Redis Pi library. I don't know when that happened. May have been a while ago, but I still think it's nice to have uh, not a separate package, but like the same package. You have the sync API for, and you can kind of use similar APIs so that you don't have to like rethink everything if you want to switch to async. It just makes it easier to migrate if you want to. Also move back if you, for some reason. So I agree. Some of these have both APIs. Like for example, uh, example SQL Alchemy, you can create an async setup connection string engine sequence, or you can do a synchronous one. And depending on you know what you're doing, you might like this utility doesn't want to be async. So we're just going to go and use the sync API, but your web app or API might want the async version. Let's see a couple more notables here. The Piccolo one, I think is pretty interesting because I really think the query syntax for this one is is quite expressive. Have you played with Piccolo? I have not, but I, I still admire its query style. I recently checked it out though. And I also have the same impression that the, the query syntax is super nice because compared to others like Prisma, I also looked at lately. And while they have type safety with like type sticks, mm -hmm. you know, here you actually have the Python symbols or, or variables you can use which is, I think, a little bit nicer than having strings, even though they can be auto-completed. Yeah, and you get, and when you do refactoring, like it understands what's going on. So for, just for people listening, for example, to do a select statement, I would say await because it's async. Band would be the class. You say band.select, then band type dot name, and then where dot where band dot popularity greater than 100. A lot of these ORMs and ODMs have like janky syntax to push operations into it. So for example, in Mongo Engine, you would say popularity 
underscore GT equals 100. So popularity greater than 100, but it's you're saying equals. You don't want equals. You want the greater than symbol, right? And this is like exactly the same meaning in SQL as it is in Python, which I just really like that. Yeah. And it's also super cool if you're, you know, entering a code base and you see these kind of things because it even if you don't know Piccolo, like he would understand what's going on. Yeah, exactly. Which I think is a good aspect of a, of a nice API. It is. So Brandon out the audience has a question. It says, uh, so we can use async PG in place of psycho PG2? Don't, I haven't done enough with this, but what are your thoughts? I'm not sure if the latter one really is async. Yeah, I think the deal is the the, the latter one, Psycho PG2, is not async. Yeah. And so that's what, say, SQL Alchemy would use if you had created a synchronous connection. But if you wanted to do the async version, then you would have to use the async PG foundation for it, basically. I think that's my understanding, but I do more MongoDB than... Postgres, so. I think so too, but I, I wouldn't really know because I've always or lately been using uh, async only, so. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> exactly. It's not the only thing you would have to change, right? You would also have to adapt your code and put the weights here and there and, and make your code async. You can't just uh, replace the query string and then expect it to work. So one other one here that I think is probably noteworthy to put in the database drivers, and I'd like to hear your thoughts on this as well. Is the AIO SQLite? Yeah. On one hand, interesting because SQLite doesn't really do much concurrency. So you're like, well, that's silly. Like, why would I ever want to use AIOs, you know, like the async IO with it if it doesn't really do that? But if you're writing a web API or website or something that uses SQL Alchemy and you want to on dev use SQLite just for like a simple test and you want to use Postgres in production, well, guess what? Your async code will fail to run on SQL Alchemy unless you have AIO SQLite as the foundation like we just talked about. So it kind of allows you to still test your code and run it, even though you wouldn't necessarily directly use it. Yeah, I think we've always been using AIO SQLite for testing purposes. Super nice because you can use like in-memory databases and don't need to worry about the setup too much. And it just works, basically. I need to be careful, though, for a few features. Yeah. Because <laughs> it's not exactly a match, right? Exactly. So we had the case where, you know, it didn't, it worked in, in testing and in CI and then broke in production because we haven't been using or testing against Postgres. All right, let's move on to the networking section. So what stands out? There's not that many of this one. This is not overwhelming like the database thing, right? Yeah, I think probably a lot of people know is HTTPX, which is a super nice request-like package for making HTTP calls. It has a similar... API. And you can, the good thing, or what I really like is that you can use it in sync and async, and the API looks pretty much the same. So if you want to switch from sync to async, I think it, it's the delight to use it. You can just say httpx.get, just like you can with requests, which is great. And then if you want the async version, do they have an async example? It's super easy to click. I think you just create like an async client and then call the same functions on it. Yes. Much like requests where you create like a, a client, you just say, or a, session, a client session, I guess it's called. You say, create an async client, then you hit await the client.get. Yeah, it's, yeah. it's always interesting uh, it's, to me how libraries decide to add on async and an, I mean, rephrase that, a synchronous and a non-synchronous version, like the both variants into the same library, right? Mm. Do you see people doing that successfully? Like, do you see any patterns that you really like when they do that? I think I actually like how HTTPX is in- implemented in that regards. I didn't dig much in the code base, but like you have the same like protocols for the for the API so that you can reuse them easily and kind of interchange the, the I think the transport layer in this case. 
Yeah, it's super nice. But yeah. for my own libraries, it always bothered me to that there is no really nice API to provide both in like the same mm-hmm. function. Like you couldn't reuse the function name in an async version or the method name, right? You need to have another class with the. But I guess that's just how it is. And- you know, I think a lot of these probably grow up. They come into existence to be one or the other. And then they're like, all right, well, we kind of want to have both. So how do we add it? And if personally, if I was going to start from the very beginning, I would like to see what they're doing just for the synchronous version of HTTPX, where you just say HTTPX.get. Yeah. Instead of saying import HTTPX, you'd have to say from like HTTPX synchronous import HTTPX or from HTTPX async import HTTPX. And then it just exactly the same API, but you have to await everything versus not await. I don't know. I think there, like if you said, we'll control it at the import level and then what you get is either all awaitable or it's all blocking. It will be a nice pattern. Yeah. By the way, is, is there, a, could you await this get? Not really. Or is there like a, you always need a client that you want to have async support? With? I'm pretty sure for HTTPX, you have to create the client and then you have to create an async client, then you can await it. I've also seen other APIs, you have get, then you have like a get underscore async, but I kind of, I kind of don't like that since you could just do one import statement, you know, Mm. and and fix it. So I don't know. It's really, as I'm going through all these, these examples that you've curated, I'm thinking like, okay, some of these have both APIs, like how are they making that clear to people, right? Mm. What else is noteworthy on that list? I think maybe we could just super quick touch on it. You've got an async SSH library, like literally that's its name. And a DNS and a ping, right? I haven't either. It's nice to have like here at least to have some, uh, well, if, if you want to do a ping, like it may not be obvious what to use. So I think it's it's a good one or at least people consider it a good one. So I think it's it's nice adding those to the list. So there are a few like niche libraries on the list, which wouldn't make a huge, like they wouldn't get many votes probably if you do this because- right. They're not broadly useful. You're like- Oh my goodness, I've been building a DNS system. I'm so glad I found AIO DNS. But exactly. actually some of the frameworks, like I believe HTTPX uses um, that under the covers, pretty sure. Something I, I played with recently was like using AIO DNS under the covers to make its work a little more asynchronous. Yeah, it will make sense, yeah. Excellent, all right. Tell us about the testing story. I mean, here of the ones we see on the screen, um, there's IO mock, there's async test, PyTest async IO, A responses and AI IO responses. And I've been only using PyTest async IO, to be honest. Mm-hmm. And it basically add, gives you the, like a decorator to mark your, your async PyTest or your tests as async so that they run in an event loop. There is also now a mode you can set in a configuration where you don't need that marker. So you would, if you have a test, like you would say async depth test underscore some underscore async IO code, and then your normal test code, and you would mark, decorate this function with a PyTest mark async IO decorator. But yeah, okay. it's not, I think not necessary. These days you could configure it to, to have it in auto mode where it basically just detects always a, it's a coroutine. I'd schedule it in, on the event loop. Yeah, and this is not about trying to say, well, I've got a bunch of async test functions, so let's try to run them all in parallel, like X test or X dist or any of those types of things. It's just, I have some te- I have some function I want to call and test its result. It's async, so I have to await it. In order to await it, the test function itself must be async. And now how do I run it, right? <laughs> like now what? I think the other way would be kind of cumbersome to create an event loop every time and then schedule your coroutine in there and, and PyTest async IO just does that for you. Sure, you could do it, but it would it would make the code not look normal. It'd be like all these weird things you have to do to like 
async to sync file. And we'll see some frameworks that might even do something in that regard for you. But yeah, and this is really nice. It just seems like if you're testing code that is async, clearly this is some something like this is what you want. Mm-hmm. Also mocking. I hadn't really thought about mocking async methods, but I guess you need some. I've done this, like haven't used this IO mock. So there is, I think even in unit test mock, there's an async mock, like a class, which you can use. I'm not really sure why you would need this. This has changed six years ago. I wonder if the asynchronous mocking capabilities were not in the framework itself when this got created. And then probably like, you know what, we should just be able to test our own stuff. So let's fix that. Yeah, Yeah, I'm guessing. Okay, pretty nice. You mentioned UV loop before in one of the sections. This is maybe the only section that has a single item in it, but... It's a big one. UV loop, right? Yes. For alternate loops? Yeah, exactly. So you could use, if you run async IO, you can just use the one which is in like C Python. You could just use that. But there is other implementation like this UV loop, which is based on libuv, which is another event loop in C. And it just is super fast uh, compared to the built-in implementation. I think it's a great for production use cases. It's so nice because in order to use it, a lot of times, if it's just literally installed in the environment, things will use it. Like I believe UVicorn will use it if it finds it and some other things. You don't even have to say, please use it. It's just like, oh, it's available, let's go. And if for some reason you need to explicitly use it, like in your your code, you just say UV loop, you say policy, and you pass over the UV loop policy class and now the rest of your program just uses that it's really nice i don't really know many other like yeah, alternative implementations actually yeah i don't either but it's really nice and it basically bundles up as you said libuv mm-hmm. they've got some nice performance graphs it says uv loop makes async io two to four times faster who wouldn't want your your async io code to just go two to four times faster with no effort yeah and the, it's super easy to install and use so there's no really downside to do that mario has a totally reasonable question why wouldn't UV loop just be the standard async IO implementation then? What's the catch? Well, I don't know what the catch is, but I could assume that it's easier to change um, outside of the CPython development cycle. And probably that's one of the reasons. I don't know. That's a good idea. Also, you know, do you want Python itself to take on libuv? I'm sorry. Yeah, libuv as a, a C dependency. And then third, when I played with UV loop, originally, it's been a few years, it didn't work at all on Windows. Like its implementation of libuv was a, Mm. for whatever reason, it just wouldn't install on Windows. And that obviously is a breaking change or a break, a stopper. So maybe even if it works on Windows, maybe there's like some obscure place where Python runs, but libuv won't, you know, think of like some small device, like a Raspberry Pi or whatever. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah, And I think we're coming down to the discussion we had before about the benchmarking again, that Maybe not everyone actually wants this feed or needs this feed. Yeah. Maybe it's just for like very optimized production use cases and you actually need this four times faster. And for all the other use cases, maybe it's your code that is slow anyways. You don't really care too much. Yeah, there was a discussion about uh, a few years ago about why is requests not just built into Python, right? They're like, well, there's URL stuff in there, but it's way less obvious how to use it compared to just request.get <laughs> done mm-hmm. and response.json when you get your your response back and whatnot. And they debated that at the Core Dev Summit and they decided if we put requests into C Python, kind of like you were saying, is it will it'll actually slow the progress and the evolution of requests itself. And they wanted to keep this nice library its own thing that could go at its own pace.
This portion of Talk Pythonomy is brought to you by Sentry. How would you like to remove a little stress from your life? Do you worry that users may be encountering errors, slowdowns, or crashes with your app right now? Would you even know it until they sent you that support email? How much better would it be to have the error or performance details immediately sent to you, including the call stack and values of local variables and the active user recorded in the report? With Sentry, this is not only possible, it's simple. In fact, we use Sentry on all the TalkPython web properties. We've actually fixed a bug triggered by a user and had the upgrade ready to roll out as we got the support email. That was a great email to write back. Hey, we already saw your error and have already rolled out the fix. Imagine their surprise. Surprise and delight your users. Create your Sentry account at talkpython.fm slash Sentry. And if you sign up with the code TalkPython, all one word, it's good for two free months of Sentry's business plan, which will give you up to 20 times as many monthly events as well as other features. Create better software, delight your users, and support the podcast. Visit talkpython.fm slash Sentry and use the coupon code TalkPython. Yeah, it makes sense. I think there, I also heard that the security there, it's easier to patch the library in, in like um, on PyPI and, and make people yeah. an update than shipping a hotfix release or whatever of Python to fix those security issues. Absolutely. And, and Brandon just says, I just learned that fast API Starlet use UV loop by default. Yeah, that's what I, that's one of the things I was thinking of. If it's installed in the virtual environment and it has access to it, it'll just take it and go. Not, no need to, to make any changes there. All right. Awesome. So, that's just one, the one thing in the alternate loop section, but quite, quite neat indeed. And then there's got to be a miscellaneous, right? There's got to be a utils. There's got to be a helpers. There's got to be something that's just like, well, what the heck is this? Tell us about the grab bag at the end here. Yeah, there's a few here, which I find very interesting. The first one here is IOCHAN, which adds a CSP style concurrency feature. So if you've, if you've done some Go programming, you came across channels, I would say. And this IOCHAN brings these kind of patterns into async IO. So basically what you will have is you can create a channel and then you can have uh, multiple coroutines like a producer and a consumer listening and writing to this channel. And you can have it buffered or not. And, and these kind of things you can select on multiple channels and react on incoming data, these kind of things. So it's a, just another other way to communicate between your coroutines than what you would probably do with the built-in mechanism. Sure. And a lot of those patterns are incredibly hard to get just right with the event signaling and all those yes. things. And so if you can just hook it in, then it's good to go. You could probably make this work with queues and events and, yes. and, and all these, but it's nice to have the abstraction yeah, of these uh, exactly. these P uh, primitives. Yeah, it's, a, it's sort of equivalent to saying, well, you've got a HTTP server built into Python itself. Like, why do you need Flask? And they go, no, 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 we don't want to do this. Other notable ones here, like one that stood out to me is AIO cache, which is pretty straightforward. It's like just a cache, right? Add, get, set, even has a cool increment and so on. But it's async IO and it talks to Redis memcache, Redis and memcache, message pack, a bunch of different capabilities it has, right? Yeah, it looks super cool. I haven't used it. But yeah, it's nice that you can just switch out the backends and, and use something else. Also, the API looks very straightforward with like just dot set dot get. It's pretty straightforward to, uh, you know, await a, a, a cache dot get or await a cache dot set. Yeah, it's, yeah. it seems like a real nice, real nice API. The decorators uh, will look interesting so that you can cache mm -hmm. our coroutines 
probably. Yeah, exactly. That's just that I didn't really catch that before you right. So people are probably familiar with the funk tools. LRU cache. LTS cache. The LRU cache. Yes. I'm like, oh, there's a it's not a T. LRU cache. Thank you. But this is that idea. But instead of saying, well, where you cache that is in memory, as you just say, cache equals Redis, which is like, wait a minute. Okay, that's cool. That's really cool. It's cool. Just make sure the latency is uh, lower than actually your execution time. But yeah, it, it looks very nice. <laughs> that's a really good point. Like if you call this a bunch of times and the Redis is far away, like it actually might just be slower. Yeah. But the CPU will be nice and low, so you'll be fine. You'll be fine. Yes. This is a cool project. Another one that I really like, I think, adds some important capabilities is AIO files. Tell us about that one. Yeah, it basically provides you file API support like you have with normal like open these kind of functions and do it async with async IO. But I'm not sure if I read it here, but I think on some platforms like Linux, it's hard to actually implement this correctly with like ePoll and stuff. I don't know if you know more about this, but I heard that yeah. it's not really a, a, a big benefit actually to to run it async. Yeah, I don't know either. What it claims here is it doesn't try to, I don't think it tries to do fancy work with truly hooking into asynchronous stuff in the file. So it just says it is going to run it on a background thread, basically. Oh, yeah. So it, it probably creates like a, a worker thread. And whenever you ask to read, it just in the back, it goes open. You know? And then when you say await read, it just on that thread, it, you know, maybe sets an event and then does a read or something. I don't know, a little bit of like juggling background threads. But yeah. So it, in a sense, it may make it actually tiny bit slower, but if you're doing an API and the API has got to read or write a big file, that could be a problem. The other one is, you, you know, we'll see this in a couple of things we're discussing in this section. File, sometimes it might be slash user slash whatever, but it could be backslash backslash network server backslash network drive, right? It could be very, very slow where all of a sudden you know, unlocking that that access is a huge deal. Yeah, yeah. Does this actually support this? Uh, talking to network files? Oh, if you have it mounted as a drive, you mean? Okay. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, like what the thing you're talking to might actually be far away, you know? Exactly. It does say handling local disk files, but I bet if you mapped it in your OS, it wouldn't know, you know? Yeah, probably would work, yeah. What I also like here, there is also an IO path yes. package. Which that one actually looks maybe even cooler, right? Yeah, I, guess, I think a lot of people are using Pathlet these days, and IOPath basically gives you an async path uh, type, which you can just wrap around your strings or path um, objects, and you get the same methods, but just you can update them basically. So you can you can have your path.open, path.exist, and you have need to use an update. This is for you. I don't know how, here how it's implemented, if it's also using background threads or if it does some magic. Does it actually hook into the true IO uh, completion ports and all that kind of business? Yeah. Mm. Yeah. So this is really cool. So you could create, a, we all know about Path from Pathlib. It's super neat. And you can ask it questions like, does it exist? Or, you know, create this directory <laughs> or is it a directory? Or you can actually say read bytes, write bytes, read text. There's a lot of things that you would do with a context manager that become just one-liners with Pathlib. And this async pathlets, you make all those asynchronous, like await path that exists, await write bytes, and so on. Mm -hmm. And the cool thing is they really, I think, try to be a drop-in replacement for Pathlib in, in the async IO world. So if you've been having a code base or have been using Pathlib in an async code base, it's super easy to just switch to an async version of Pathlib. Oh, excellent. It says the implementation here, let's see. 
Does it tell us? It inherits from pure path, which is cool. So you could use it as an argument to some of these, some of the pieces that will take path objects directly. It takes advantage of libAIO for async IO on Linux, which is probably where you care most about performance because that's where your server is, right? Yeah. I don't know anything about libAIO, but that's probably some sort of native native type thing going on there. Mm -hmm. Like Linux native asynchronous IO access library. Yeah, that's okay. So maybe this is not just a little bit better. Yeah, maybe it's not just a little bit better than AO files because, well, you can work with path objects, but it has like an OS level implementation as well. That's pretty cool. All right, I'm using it. <laughs> I'm using it. It looks good. Yeah, that looks like those are all the ones that jumped out at me. Those those two that you called out there, those cache and the files um, or the and the path, those three, I guess. Anything else worth mentioning real quick? I think so. I mean, the mi misc one is just a miscellaneous package in the miscellaneous packages, I would say. <laughs> so it, Yeah, when I saw that, I thought, this is... Probably <laughs> thing, maybe it's in there. <laughs> it's like uh, the meta, meta miscellaneous, it's like the, or, or miscellaneous squared or something like that. That's right, yeah. there's a bunch of, of random uh, helper things in there. That's cool. Then you have some stuff, let me just go real quickly, flip through it. Like there's some stuff on writing, like tutorials and articles, and then some video talks about async IO in there, right? I think there are good ones. I think a lot of them are actually from David Beasley. I'm not sure. Yeah, if David Beasley has done some cool stuff with a yeah. kind of recreating async IO live in the early days. Yeah. And then Yuri, who we spoke about. Mm, yeah, if, if you really want to know like how you can think about like a mental model of async IO, I think these are, are very good you know, talks. She's better understand. Absolutely. Cool. I don't know about this guy though. All right. The last thing you closed it out with is alternative implementations to async IO, not just like a tool you can use within async IO, but there's Curio and Trio are like probably the big two there, right? I think Curio, I think it's from David Beasley as well, but it I don't is, think yeah. it's maintained really. But it's, it, I think it's been a nice experiment. And when the, at the time I looked at it, it was kind of minimal in the implementation. So you could kind of digest and see how something would be done uh, like async IO. Okay. There's Trio, which I think is still out there. And that's also why any IO exists probably because it kind of, you can use any IO as a front end for Trio or async IO and add some more high level features on top of async IO. Yeah. I recently had Alex from NEIO, creator of NEIO on there and mm -hmm. just real quick shout out for some of the things I thought was cool over there is it could run on top of async IO or Trio, which is cool. It also has some really interesting aspects for like converting threads into converting regular functions into awaitable things by running them on other threads. And it can either do that on a thread or it can even do that on a sub process. So you can like go and say, await run process, and then you get its value back, right? Or you could do that with sort of multi-processing or even create a asynchronous, asynchronous for loop over the output stream, like standard out of some process. I could have used this a few times in the past. <laughs> yes, I know. Like, this is really, really neat to be able to do that. And the other thing is the synchronization primitives, like events and semaphores. There's, he says, I haven't tried it out really, but they're supposed to be a little bit less likely to get deadlocks or race conditions uh, because you can't, they're not re-entrant, basically. Okay, nice. Yeah, so there's a cool bunch of cool little helper type things in, in the IO there. But, well, that's pretty much it, I think, for for the list. That was a lot. But a lot of good stuff. A lot of awesome stuff, wouldn't you say? Yeah. And I'm sure there's more awesome stuff out there. Like the SQLite one we've covered. You added one five minutes before the 
before the talk because <laughs> i was going through because i was going through I'm like oh yeah this one like i was looking at motor i'm like oh well the stuff built on motor there's some good ones there let's throw those in and people can vote for them if they want but yeah yeah there's i'm sure that people listening if they maintain one of these libraries or they're big fans and use one a lot that's not on the list you know go make a pr right absolutely yeah I also plan to add some more automation so that we can, for example, check for dead links. It would also be nice to kind of catch outdated libraries like the, which one we, like the IO mock we've seen yeah. before. Yes, exactly. Like, you know, if it hasn't been touched in six years, it probably isn't needed anymore, right? Could fade. Exactly. Awesome. I mean, this is a great resource and I, I sort of shouted out the popularity of some of these projects to give a sense. Like your list has got 3.7 thousand stars. Like that's pretty awesome. That's yeah. a lot of people who got value from it. It is. And I can only recommend to to look at these lists, you know, whatever list it is, there there are gems in there and it's kind of nice to discover them. Yeah, absolutely. Really quick out in the audience, Yamato's logic says Starlit sorry, Starlight is an async framework built on top of Starlit in Pydantic, which uh, is a good candidate. I didn't actually give a shout out to it, but I thought Oh no, it's not on there. Okay, well, they do uh, PRs. PRs are accepted and reviewed. Starlight. There you go. <laughs> cool. All right. Timo, this is really excellent project here. A ton of people are getting value from it. So thanks for putting it together. Yeah. Thanks to all the people who, who suggested the awesome stuff. So I'm, as I said, merely the maintainer of the list. So keep <laughs> wow. them coming and uh, we'll make it even better. Excellent. All right. Before you get out of here, final two questions. I feel like you could just randomly pick one from your list, but the notable PyPI part project you want to give a shout out to? I think it's not even on there, but this, it will be Tenacity. Oh yeah. Tenacity is good. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's a library for retrying stuff. I think it has async. I'm pretty sure it has um, async. Okay. Let's see. But it makes it super nice if you have like network launching. Async retries. There you go. Yeah. So it's, it's even the same decorated, which is cool from an API perspective. I don't even think you have to import something else, like something differently. Right. Because you can actually inspect the function which is being decorated and you can decide what to run. Mm-hmm. Pretty cool. I suggest you use it if you, if you want to retry something or have like unstable endpoints or whatever. Yeah. Has all the features you need. This is a great library, you know. If you're consuming someone else's API and that thing is flaky, you know, what are you supposed to do, right? You, you've got to call it potentially, but you can't count it always working. I've run into that problem on a lot of uh, my projects as well. And I've either done something like Tenacity where you just say retry it with some kind of exponential back off, or I'll go through and cache it in my database and say, I'm going to try it. If it fails, I'm going to go get it from the database and go, it might be a little bit stale, but at least this, you know, if it's something kind of stable, like a currency lookup, like, okay, an hour ago, the dollar to Swiss francs, the lookup was this. And it, it might not be perfect, but it's better than just going 500 server error, you know? I don't know how many, like, while loops I've written in my life to kind of check a, a timeout and then retry and sleep and these kind of things. And it's hard to get this right because, you know, you want to catch termination of the, of the program and cancel these things. So... It's nice to have a library for all. Yeah, cool. And the fact that they support async is like perfectly blends in. We should add it to the list as well. Yeah, yeah. Actually, it, it would belong there, wouldn't it now? <laughs> all right. And then the other question is, if you're going to write some Python code, what editor are you using these days? These days, VS Code. Uh, it's important, though, that it has been key bindings. I've been a been user for quite some time. So I certainly need that. Yeah, but VS Code, VS code is my editor to go these days. All right. Final call to action. People are interested in... Your awesome list. What do you tell them? Please contribute to your awesome ideas. Make a PR. Um, also, if you have ideas around automation, please send them our way. Create a pull request or, you know, an achievement. 
be nice. As a maintainer, that's a very welcome thing, right? To it is. find things you don't have to maintain, I'm sure. <laughs> Absolutely. <yeah. laughs> awesome. All right. Well, thanks so much for being here. Thanks everyone to listen. Thank you too, Michael. Yeah. Bye. Bye. This has been another episode of Talk Python to Me. Thank you to our sponsors. Be sure to check out what they're offering. It really helps support the show. Starting a business is hard. Microsoft for Startups Founders Hub provides all founders at any stage with free resources and connections to solve startup challenges. Apply for free today at talkpython.fm slash foundershub. Take some stress out of your life. Get notified immediately about errors and performance issues in your web or mobile applications with Sentry. Just visit talkpython.fm slash Sentry and get started for free. And be sure to use the promo code TALKPYTHON, all one word. Want to level up your Python? We have one of the largest catalogs of Python video courses over at TalkPython. Our content ranges from true beginners to deeply advanced topics like memory and async. And best of all, there's not a subscription in sight. Check it out for yourself at training.talkpython.fm. Be sure to subscribe to the show, open your favorite podcast app, and search for Python. We should be right at the top. You can also find the iTunes feed at slash iTunes, the Google Play feed at slash play, and the direct RSS feed at slash RSS on talkpython.fm. We're live streaming most of our recordings these days. If you want to be part of the show and have your comments featured on the air, be sure to subscribe to our YouTube channel at talkpython.fm slash YouTube. This is your host, Michael Kennedy. Thanks so much for listening. I really appreciate it. Now get out there and write some Python code.